0: I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark on our Sunday morning services. And today we're in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. And a message I call a staff, sandals, and a single coat. Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two. And gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics, a staff, sandals, and a single tunic. Uh, It has been thrilling in our consideration of the Gospel of Mark to consider these passages, again, that are just saturated with the message of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In our chaotic world today, I felt it would do us good, and it is doing us good, to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and, and what He does, what He is doing in our world, what He did. And so we look at these stories, but we look with them at them with a, a fresh sense of urgency in our own life because we know that we need them in the world that we're living in as well. Today we're going to be seeing Jesus demonstrating that great principle of multiplication. Now this principle applies in basically any field of endeavor. Here's a person who knows what to do. He knows how to do it. And he knows how to get things done. So he has that knowledge. He knows what has to be done. He knows how to do it, how to get it done. And he can keep all that to himself. And then he can do as much as he himself or she is capable of doing. But if the task then goes beyond them so that there's still more to be done uh, and more than any one person can do on their own, then you have to somehow move into that area of multiplication so that you then must recruit other people and teach them what to do, teach them what you know, so that then they know how to do what needs to be done and and how to get things done. That is the principle of multiplication. And it works in the business world. It certainly works in the religious world. We know how that is. I can do what I can do. But if there's more to be done, then I have to learn how to work through other people. Now, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ never reached the end of His capacity to work because He was fully man and fully God. But we also know that because He was fully man, though all of the power of the Godhead dwelled in Him bodily, the Bible says, still He only had one set of feet and He could only be in one place at one time. That was His humanity. Furthermore, those feet were only going to be on this earth for about a year, a little over a year more uh, at this point in time. He knew that his time on this earth was coming to a close. So already he has been pouring into these 12 men, these men that would be later called in Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. For the first time, we'll see that word introduced to us. These men who would be known as apostles. And they would come back and give a report then to Jesus. Uh, so these men, these 12 men, these apostles then were being sent out by Jesus. That's what the word apostle means. To do that work. They were going to go places where Jesus had not gone. Before too long, they would be responsible for taking over it all. And so here Jesus is sending them out in a limited capacity. Uh, They were only supposed to go to the Jewish people. Uh, uh, Matthew's account tells us that Jesus specifically forbid them from going to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles. They were only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Time was short. It was time for Jesus to begin to work through others. And He chose to do that. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus Christ chose to work through us? There was only one Jesus. Now He sends out the twelve. They've been sending out and sending out and sending out people to join Jesus in His work and represent Him. Now, as Mark then introduces us to this concept of apostles, he just simply tells us the apostles gathered to Jesus. You see, uh, the word apostles means sent. In that context, it usually meant sent with a message or sent with orders, an apostle uh, then often had a military connotation. They would be sent with a message, sent with orders to deliver. They didn't make up the message for themselves. They did not make up the orders. They merely passed it along. And that's what the apostles were. But notice now, they, uh, this is what they did. Uh, yeah, what do you do? Well, we're apostles. We, we were sent by Jesus to do the message. Well, what are you? Well, we're apostles. What they did was so powerful, so overwhelming... That it took up their whole identity. This is what we are. We'll see that same thing happen with the word witness. And Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, You shall be witnesses to me. You shall be witnesses. Witnessing is what we do, certainly. We tell other people about Jesus. What is a witness? A witness tells what they have seen and heard. (laughs) Listen, if you've been saved this morning, you can tell somebody else how to be saved. If Jesus Christ has worked in your life, then you can tell somebody else what Jesus has done for you. And so there is that concept of being a witness. But as we are witnesses to Jesus Christ, we become witnesses. We ask what ourselves, we're witnesses to Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm a plumber. Well, that may be so. But if you're saved, you are a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm a teacher. Well, okay, good. But if you're saved, then you are a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a doctor. Great. Then you are a witness if you're saved to the Lord Jesus Christ. I could give you many, many other examples. But whatever we are, whatever we do, if we're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're also witnesses. I'm a witness to what Jesus Christ can do in the lives of anybody who will let Him. Granted, the apostles had some special things going on. In this passage, in verse 7, Jesus tells them that I'm going to give you power over the unclean spirits, the demons. Now, Jesus had that power. We've seen Him demonstrate that over and over again. Jesus could cast out demons. Now, He's given that authority to them. We'll also see... Uh, that he was given them, Jesus was able to cast out or, or deal with diseases, heal people of their diseases. Now the apostles are going to be uh, also doing the same thing. Uh, Jesus had power over the creation. He was able uh, to stop a, a storm in its tracks. That, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, he's going to have power over death. The apostles would do that too. You see, these men had some special things. We see Jesus giving them power in this passage. Before he left this world, he would breathe on them and said, Receive the Spirit. He gave them a special anointing to do that work. It's interesting, in this passage, the word that he uses for power, I'll give you power over demons, is the word exousia in Greek. It's the word that our word authority comes from. You see, they saw two kinds of power. There's a power that's dynamic power. That was the Greek word dynamos. But then there's this kind of power, exousia, authoritative power of the two. By far and away, the authoritative power is the strongest. Uh, let me illustrate. If, uh, if I decided to, uh, that I was going to restrain you, I might be able, might, heavy emphasis on the might, I might be able uh, to put a, a set of cuffs on you, restrain you, hold you down, and, and, and cuff you. I might could do that. I do not want to put that theory into practice. But I might, could do that. I assure you there are people in this auditorium right now who can do it. <laughs> You're not going to be able to stop them. They know what they're doing. They know how. Okay, but that, that's one thing. That there's that power then, that ability, that strength that gives somebody the ability to do something. And that's one thing. But you know what? Uh, a, a five foot tall uh, female police officer that wouldn't weigh a hundred pounds dripping wet could walk up to me and say, put your hands behind your back. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my hands behind my back. Why? Because of that other kind of power, much stronger than dynamic power, is the power of authority. Don't be fooled today, folks. All this talk about defunding the police, they're just trying to divert attention. What they're really trying to do, and they're doing it, is take away the authority of the police. And they're having great success at it. All you have to do is see all the people who are fighting the police, refusing to obey the police. What, what is that? That's being fed into people. What is it doing? It's trying to take away their authoritative power. What they don't realize, and if they'd read the Bible they'd know it, but you and I know it, is that those uh, police powers are actually spoken of in Scripture as being God's ministers to us for our good. Because God puts them in the world. They're His ministers. What do they do? They restrain evil. And if you resist them, you're not just resisting their authority. You're resisting God's authority too. Um, I'm going to have to leave out of that, folks. I could preach this whole sermon on that. I've got a lot more ground to cover. But uh, uh, authority is by far and away... Of the two kinds of power, authoritative power is far, far greater than dynamic power. That's what Jesus gave these men. He gave them authority then over the demonic spirits, over disease, and yes, even ultimately over death itself. they would demonstrate that. They would be able then to continue that great work. But with the death of the apostle John, which also, by the way, coincided... With the completion of the New Testament, the last apostle was gone. And there 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 was nobody to continue that office. Jesus gave them a special anointing. He gave them a special ability then to continue that. Paul would talk about the signs of an apostle to the church at Corinth. And nobody, nobody has done what the apostles did. since. Nobody's doing that. But that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ isn't still working. He is. And though He does not send us out to be apostles in that sense, that we're able to continue that incredible ministry they had, but He does send us out to be witnesses. And I think we can look in this passage today and then see how this thing plays out. We can learn a lot from what Jesus Uh, did for these men as he began to multiply his ministry. One of the first things we can learn is that we have to do the same thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul told Timothy, "Uh, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, he said, the same commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what you have learned from me, he said, you commit to faithful men And then they'll do the same thing. Do you see how that chain of discipleship goes? Paul uh, taught Timothy. Timothy was going to teach others and those men were going to teach others. And that has been going on ever since. If you know the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it's because somebody taught it to you. Somebody helped you to learn it. Somebody helped you to figure it out. That's what discipleship is all about. So Jesus was sending them out to make disciples, just as He sent us out to make disciples. The Great Commission says, go into all the world and make disciples. Yeah, disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to remember we're not making disciples or followers of ourselves. That's an important distinction. This world is absolutely awash with spiritual leaders who've forgotten this. And they seem to be out to make a following for themselves. We are disciples, listen, of Jesus Christ. And our goal is to make sure that other people become followers of Jesus Christ. We have learned, you see, the power of following Jesus, so we want other people to follow Jesus too. We aren't here to create spectators. That's not the task of the church. We're not here to put on a show and then see how many people we can get to come and enjoy the show. We are instead called, as the apostles were called, to deliver a message and to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. We are sent into this world to make disciples. That's our task. Now, I used to say that church isn't much of a show when you think about it, but I'll tell you, American Christianity has worked very hard to change all of that. And uh, there are multitudes of places today and churches today that are built around the show, and it's all about the show. And it's a pretty good show, I'd have to say. But our job is not to create spectators, folk. Our job is to create disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, who in turn then will create other followers, not of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ. So how does this play out? I want to show you then this morning a very simple message. First of all, let's look at what they did. What they actually did. As Jesus sent them out, what did they do? Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. See, these people had heard John the Baptist preach. You know what John the Baptist preached? Repent. They'd heard Jesus preach. You know what Jesus preached? Repent. So now it's their turn. When they are sent out, what are they going to do? They're going to go out and preach repentance. They knew the message well. They had learned it well. They had heard it. And God doesn't call everyone to be a preacher like this. He doesn't send out everybody to preach. But as He calls us to be witnesses, we need to remember, this is one of the fundamental things that we call people to, to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has never been a popular message. It wasn't in Jesus' day, and it's not now. Repentance contains the idea that we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And, you know, folks just don't like to hear that. Repent means to turn from our sins and turn to God. Repentance, then, is is that awareness where we come to the understanding that I have sinned. It's not that somebody else messed up, or my parents messed up, or uh, my country's messed up, or somebody lived 200 years ago messed up, but I have sinned, I have sinned. And that's where repentance brings to us, brings us to. And then as we repent, people are going to receive the gospel, we receive Him instead of rejecting Him. This is what they did. They preached Jesus' message. They did Jesus' work. And so John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. The disciples are preaching repentance. And we, guess what, are still preaching repentance today. And I want you to know that whether it was then or whether it's now, the preachers of repentance then, John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, And now all of us that are still preaching and calling people to repentance, out of all of those people who have preached repentance, which is turning from our sin and turning to God, there's only been one who didn't need to repent himself. And that was the Lord Jesus. So when we're preaching repentance, we're not saying, hey, look at me, I'm perfect, I've got it all together, and you're just all messed up and you need to get your act together. That is a pitiful caricature of the Christian faith and message. That has never been what we preach. It's never been what we taught. We preach repentance. Why? Because we have experienced the power of it. We know what it's like to be a sinner. We know what it's like to mess up. We know what it's like to be guilty before God. And we know what it's like then when we repent of our sins and say, God, I'm sorry. And we enjoy then the wonderful experience of His grace and forgiveness. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. But even when we've done that, we're not through repenting. You know why? (laughs) Because we're not through sinning. Uh, Sad but true. We still mess up. You see, our message is not that we're perfect and everybody else is messed up. When I'm preaching to repentance and why you need to repent, I'm not even insinuating that I'm not in the same boat with you because I am. This Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if I understand the word all, and I do, that means that all of us have sinned. All of us have come short. And all of us need to repent. These men then went out preaching the message of repentance, unpopular though it was, difficult though it certainly was going to be, They knew the power of it. They knew the joy that comes when we confess our sins and we find out God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul the Apostle put it so well for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 when he said, We preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's a really good thing because if the Christian faith and message depended on our ability to live up to everything the Bible says, on our ability to be perfect, on our ability to be absolutely sinless, on our ability to never mess up or never foul up, if that's what it was all about, so that the gospel only works then when it comes from somebody who is, No, if that was so, then Jesus would have had to stay here and keep doing it because he was the only one who could do that. But the very fact that He sent these men out then and let them begin to preach the message of repent and believe the gospel tells us that it's not about them. It's about Jesus Christ. I'm not preaching myself. I'm preaching Jesus Christ. not talking about what I can do. I'm talking about what Jesus is doing in me and what He's doing in you. If you're doing anything good, Jesus did it. What's good in us? Jesus Christ has made it. What is acceptable in the sight of God is what Jesus Christ has made us that's why the Bible says we are accepted in the beloved we're accepted in Christ we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord that's what they did they went out preaching repent and believe the gospel just like John had done just like Jesus had done now notice how they did it and that's spelled out for us in the commands itself look in verse 7 He called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, Shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And let me just be really quick and tell you uh, the reason why that Jesus brought up Sodom and Gomorrah is remember, you know, Sodom... And Gomorrah was a recipient of a horrible time of judgment. The judgment of God would fall on them. Yet Abraham had interceded and God had promised to spare the city if they found only ten righteous people. The whole cities of the plain. All five cities actually would have been spared for ten. But the only witness they had there was a backslidden believer named Lot whose testimony was so invalid that he couldn't even get all of his own family out, couldn't even get his own wife out. And so Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah because all they had for a witness was that backslidden believer. But listen, uh, now he's sending out their best. The apostles, and he's sending them out with power so that they'd be able to perform these incredible miracles and heal people and demonstrate their power over diseases and the devil. But as they were sent then into this hostile territory, though it was Judea, we could expect them to have the same kind of response that Jesus had. You know, Jesus cast out demons and healed, no telling how many thousands of people. He performed miracle after miracle after miracle. They drew a crowd. No question about it. The, the crowds, we've seen that as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. We've seen the crowds. We're just always among them. They we're always around it. We'll see it again before the end of this chapter. They certainly drew crowds. But after his death, burial, and resurrection, they had a gathering down in Judea. And there was 120 there on the day of Pentecost. After his death, burial, and resurrection, they had a gathering in Galilee. There's about 500 there and probably some of the ones that were at the gathering in Judea were probably at the gathering in Galilee about five where was all the 5000 that ate the bread and the fish where were the thousands of people who were cast, cast out demons where were all of the people that he had healed where were they where were they so yes they were Going out, they were going to this crowd. They were given the power to preach. Just, and they were going to preach the same message that Jesus preached. They were given the power to do miracles. They were going to do the same kind of miracles that Jesus did. But in Matthew's account, in Matthew 10, he, Jesus reminded them, they accused Him. That is, Jesus of being in league with Beelzebub. And they would accuse the disciples of being the same thing. And at least one of them was. And that was Judas. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why he sent him out two by two is so that Judas would never be alone. It wasn't time to expose him. Judas was an unbeliever. He was in league with Satan. He was never alone in this task. But also there were some practical reasons. You know the law required that there would be two or three witnesses. So they they always had that. They were itinerant evangelists. They had a lot of ground to cover. Again, in Matthew's account of this, he would tell Jesus would tell them that you won't finish this task before I catch up with you. I will come. I'll I will meet you. I'll be with you, and 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 you're not going to finish this task before before I come and be with you. It's 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 important business. They would operate under the principle that those that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Therefore. Uh, They didn't take money or a change of clothes, just a staff, their sandals, and clothes on their back. That's it. It was not their job to see to it that the people believed. It was their job to see to it that they got the message. Thus Jesus gave them that sobering instruction in this passage when He said, If they don't receive you, you go into place, and they don't receive you you take off your sandals and shake them. I I thought about taking my shoes off and busting them, but I don't think I have to do that. (laughs) I probably got a hole in my sock. Uh, Just take your sandals off and bust them. What was that? It was much like what Pilate did when he washed his hands. He said, I'm I'm pure of this, I'm through with this. When they shook off the dust of their feet and their way of thinking, that meant that they had done their job. And that the judgment that was going to come was on the people who rejected it, not on the people who gave the message. You see, this message of judgment was inherent in that New Testament presentation of the gospel, and it still is. You want to see it play out, it's in Acts chapter 13 and verse 50. Paul and his crowd had gone up to a city known as Antioch in Pisidia and there uh, they preached the gospel. They went to this Jewish synagogue first, and it was rather controversial, although a lot of them believed some of the people who were there were Jewish proselytes. That means they were Gentile converts to to, uh, Judaism, And, and they were quick to receive the message about Jesus Christ. They went out and began to spread it, publish it around the city, so that the next Sabbath day, the Bible says, almost the whole city, imagine that, Almost the whole city came together to hear them, And many, many people were saved. You'd think that everybody would be excited about that, but they weren't. The Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, then began to stir up, the Bible says in Acts 13 and 50, stir up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city, and they raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. They ran them out of town. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Folks, they weren't happy because these people had rejected Jesus Christ and were facing the judgment of God. They were happy because a lot of people got saved. And they knew that a lot more people were going to hear the gospel, and a lot of more people were going to respond, and a lot more people would believe. Yes, some rejected. Yes, some believed. American Christianity has somehow lost sight of this, and I want to reacquaint it with you. Reacquaint you with it today. See, a few years ago. Uh, some guys decided that the problem was how preachers were dressing. I know this sounds amazing to you, but it, it was. I could show you the books they wrote. Uh, their thinking was if you would get, do away with your suit and tie and preach in blue jeans and a t-shirt, then lost people would come and listen to you. They won't listen to you wearing a suit and tie. But they'll listen to you wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt. They got rid of the pulpits because of course lost people didn't like pulpits. They stopped preaching because lost people don't like preaching. They don't want to be preached at. <laughs> the first one of these books I read, folk, I wanted to say, if I could ask them a question, I said, when have people ever liked it? I mean, you know, well, people don't like to be preached to. Do tell. It wasn't long before the Bible went to the background. Because you guessed it, you know, lost people don't like what the Bible says. Then lost people don't like going to church, so we stopped calling them churches. Lost people don't like organ music or choirs, so we got rid of all them too. And all of this was done for the same reason. Well, you know, we're just not reaching people anymore. People aren't responding to the gospel anymore. So we've got to change everything up we got to do some different stuff. Try some different ideas. Go to plan B. Because they're just not responding to the gospel anymore. Jesus sent these people out with nothing. Not even a change of clothes. And the reason he did it then is so that they would know and we would know. That the power to do this work is not something we can manufacture. It's not something we can monkey with. It's not about money. If you could buy a response, look where we'd be. It's not about bread. Sooner or later, somebody would have said, you know, maybe if we fed them first, they'd, they'd come and listen. Maybe, maybe if we paid them, they'd come. No. They didn't, they didn't have any of that. They preached the gospel. And if they rejected What did they do? Why? Because their rejection was on them. It wasn't that they'd done something wrong, it was that they'd done exactly what Jesus said. They couldn't change their clothes. Let's all wear our casual tunics today. Maybe they'll listen to us. Mm -mm. You see, this element of judgment was placed prominently in their message. And remember, I told you it's still there today. Jesus was sending them to a lot of places where he had never been. He was sending them to preach the message of Jesus Christ. He had made quite a few visits into Gentile areas, but he didn't let them. He had spent most of his time right there around the Sea of Galilee or around the city of Jerusalem. Now they're going out to these other cities, towns, and villages to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and do his work. They were going to face the same rejection that Jesus faced. In fact, He would tell them in Matthew 10, if you want to read that account later, Servants not greater than His Lord. What they've done to me, Jesus said, they'll do to you. But they didn't all reject. Some were saved. Jesus was sending them to a dying nation, headed full steam ahead into the judgment of God. I'm sorry, my nose is itching. If I could stop it, I would. This nation was headed full steam into the judgment of God. Forty years later, forty years, Jesus was sending out a bunch of twenty-something and thirty-something-year-old folks In 40 years, the nation of Israel would fall. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The Romans would crucify men from Dan to Beersheba. That's from the northern border to the southern border. They would crucify thousands. Millions would be killed. The nation of Israel would be destroyed. Jerusalem would be looted and sacked. The temple itself would not have a stone left on a stone. You remember that shortest verse of the Bible, you know, Jesus wept. Well, you know, He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, but He also wept over Jerusalem. He saw the results of their rejection. In 40 years, it'd play out. I'm going to tell you something, folks, today, and... I don't don't plan to be around here 40 years from now. Uh, Not unless uh, Brother B.C. Hudson can rub off on me a little bit. If I I can can still preach and get out and work like he does when I'm 90-something or 102, I'd, I'd be okay with that. Otherwise, I'd just soon go on to glory. I don't figure I'll be around 40 years from now. Some of you will. And I worry about what this nation is going to be 40 years from now. And if you're a believer in Christ and you're seeing things playing out right now, I think you have that same concern. I could say today, God, as Jesus sent these apostles out to a dying nation, headed into the judgment of God in many ways, we're doing the same thing. And I'll say it clearly now. So that if 40 years from now, some of you young folks, if you're still alive and still around, you can remember that old white-headed preacher that told you, for America, it is revival or ruin. It is revival or else. There is nothing that's going to save this country except a revival. If God gives us one... Then our, our, our great great grandkids might be still living in the home of the free and the land of the free and the home of the brave. But it, uh, apart from that, I don't know what is going to happen. But it's not going to be good, and it's not going to be kind to the gospel. Jesus stood before this twenty something, thirty something year old crowd, knowing full well. That almost all of them would live to see this play out. Though he was headed on back to glory. He was going to leave them in charge. And it was time. What was he sending them out to do? This is their time. To go out and be witnesses. This was their time. To go out and make disciples. And he did it. He sent them out to do it. Knowing that most of them would pay for their preaching with their lives. And he sends them out with a staff, shoes, and a single coat. Doesn't sound like much, does it? (laughs) But let me remind you this morning, these men changed the world. They changed the world. Thank God they did. We're still experiencing the benefits of their ministry that ministry is still alive and well and still going on and it works under persecution just as it works in times of prosperity and plenty what do they have nothing one the clothes on their back a staff in their hand and shoes that's it But they had everything they needed to do what Jesus Christ sent them out to do because the power that was there to work in them was not the power that they held in their hand. It wasn't the power of the shoes or, or the clothes or what kind of clothes they wear or any of the things they could manufacture on their own. The power to do what Jesus sent them to do was in the incredible power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of the Spirit of God. And it is still that same message today greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world I love what Paul the apostle said I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some God remember didn't put us in the result making business he put us in the business to see to it that people get the message that's what he sent these men out to do that's what he's been sending generations to do We're still doing it today. And within this message then of the gospel is still that alternative of judgment. Years ago, the great evangelist Vance Havner warned about churches and how easily they can be sidetracked by secondary success. It's his way of saying, you know, we can get all excited about a lot of different things that we're doing But the question is, are we doing what Jesus sent us out to do, making disciples? Our task is somewhat different than these men, these 12 men's task was. Jesus implemented the church as the administrative agency of the kingdom so that we don't just bounce around from city to city to city. We see that playing out throughout the New Testament era. Jesus himself was doing it as the apostles then went out in the book of Acts when people, they went into a city, people were saved, they were baptized, they were organized into a church, then they got pastors, there were churches that were put in all these places and so that the kingdom can continue to be developed and that it includes relationships with one another as well as our relationship with the Lord. But though we're a long way away, our task of witnessing has not changed. I want to remind you this morning that this task of being a witness, listen to me today, this task of being a witness starts in your own home, with your own children, your own family. At a seminary professor, I can still hear his voice, though he's long on, gone on to glory. He used to stand up and say, boys, what you are at home is what you are. I've never forgotten it. What you are at home is what you are. He reminded us that it wouldn't matter how many uh, churches we built and all the great things that we did if in the doing of all of that other thing we lost our own family. The most, our our. our Task of making disciples starts at home. Where we need to be witnesses to is at home. And our our kids need to see us worship. And they need to see us work. We need to involve them in this. This is a place where we're involved. They, They need to interact with us as we come to church and worship. And they see us work, yes, and serve in church. And then they say, that's important. I need to learn how to do that. If you're out working in the yard, take your kids out there. Teach them how to work. Teach them how to worship. Put those two things together and they learn that we work so that we can worship. And there's a joy to be had in all that. What are we doing? We're talking about discipling our families, our children. But even as I talk to you about that, I also want to remind you there is no guarantee. Again, look at Matthew's account in Matthew 10. Take a few moments and read it today. And you'll see that Jesus talked to them a lot about how that their greatest enemies might be in their own household. And how that some houses were going to be divided by a believing spouse who maybe is partnered with an unbelieving spouse toward children who don't share their parents' faith or parents who don't share their children's faith. There's no guarantee. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you did it wrong. Because remember, God put us in the seeing to it that they get the message business. How they respond is up to them. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Go into all the world, Jesus said, and make disciples Followers of Jesus Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you making followers of Jesus? Let's stand together, please.